name is Amy Ware, and today's scripture is from Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 17. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Hevalia, and there is gold. And the good of the land is good. Bedalium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Amy. It is uh, great to be with you all. Uh, I remarked to my family coming over, that was the first time being at Christ's Covenant that I have been in the congregation singing. It was awesome. You guys are great singers. Up here, the lights are blinding. I have head, headphones in so I can hear myself. But uh, just to encourage you, I mean, one of the the glories of gathering together is to sing corporately and that your voice matters in that. And uh, so it was, it was a joy to, um, to sing with you all this morning. Uh, if we haven't met before, my name is Jordan Coughlin. I serve as one of the pastors here at Christ Covenant. And uh, it is a joy this morning to open up God's word with you. Um, if you haven't already, I encourage you to turn to the book of Genesis. We're going to be moving through it um, in different ways. We just heard from Genesis chapter 2, but we're going to be looking at different sections. Uh, Today marks a two-part series, so this week and next week, that we are doing entitled Christianity and the Arts. Um, Next week, Jason's going to be preaching on the topic of beauty, Uh, and this week we get to look at the topic of creativity. Um, Our goal in this series and kind of the genesis of it was to try and answer the question for all of us, how do Christians rightly understand the place of creativity, beauty, and art in our Christian lives? How do we appropriately appreciate the creativity in this world and participate in it while still being mindful of the, the temptations and abuses of it? Now, I just want to tell us at the outset, we're not going to cover these things exhaustively. Uh, As I was preparing, there are many roads that I wanted to go down that I 
couldn't go down, but we are going to try to set some principles that then our hope and encouragement is that we can work these things out in our community together. I also recognize that upon hearing this topic and hearing this two-part series, um, there can be one of two responses. Uh, The first is, yes, finally. You're a creative person. Everybody knows you're a creative person. You have wanted creativity and the arts to be central to our gatherings together, and so you're ready to engage. Others of us, maybe not so much. Maybe you do not view yourself as a creative person, and you don't understand people who are. Maybe you couldn't be paid enough to go into a fine arts museum. You look at a painting and you think, that's a painting. I think that God has something to say to both groups of people and wherever you find yourself in the middle of that. Because I think that whether you view yourself as a creative person or not, there are two principles that all of us are called to act on. The first is that we're called to pursue creativity in our own lives. And the second is we're called to learn to value good art and beauty. Now, I'll hope to convince all of you of that as we move along. So let's look at scripture this morning. And before we do that, let's, let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, you have brought us here. God, though we made the decision to get up and get out of bed and get dressed and come, we acknowledge that it's in your, at your invitation. And your invitation to us is a grace-filled invitation. It's to come and to feast upon you, to hear your word, the words of life. And so, Spirit of God, my prayer and my hope is that as we consider your word together, that you would change us, that we would learn better how to follow you and to be filled with wonder at who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Our world is an endlessly beautiful place. You could spend the rest of your life feasting on the natural beauty of the world and not even begin to plumb the depths of all that there is. From the Grand Canyon to Mount Everest, the depths of the ocean to the vast expanse of our universe, waterfalls, volcanoes, rainforests, deserts, it is full of wonder and beauty. And then humankind has brought order and cultivation to the world in ways that are almost unimaginable. We have computers on our wrists and in our pockets. We have skyscrapers. We have telescopes. We have rockets that go to Mars. We have coded the human genome. We have access to literally any information at any point in time. We have books, movies, music that would take multiple lifetimes to take in. The list goes on and on. This world is almost endlessly creative and and beautiful. 
And as the Bible begins, the first revelation of God to us is that there is one brilliant mind behind all of it. God. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, these are not new words for us. It's, it's probably one of the first Bible verses that we learn. But consider the staggering implication of this statement. Everything that we observe and experience in this world, God created. Things that we have discovered and things that remain undiscovered. Here's just a few. God created the atom. Now I had to look this up, but the atom measures six picometers across. Now a picometer is one trillionth the size of a meter. That's pretty small. God created it. God also created the universe. Now, the universe of what we know is around 150 billion light years in diameter. Now, if you remember, light traveling is 186,000 miles per second. Now, to put that in context, our sun is 93 million miles away. Okay, 93 million miles away from Earth. The sun's light takes eight minutes to get to Earth. Okay, so the sun's rays takes eight minutes. That covers 93 million miles. The universe is 150 billion light years across. Amazing. God created it. Now, speaking of the sun, God also created that. This burning inferno of gas perfectly positioned in the universe so that neither burns us, although sometimes, nor freezes us. Perfect in its position, God created the sun. God didn't just create colorful things in the world. He created color itself. That he decided what color the, the sky would be and the ocean, the lush greens of the trees and grass. He designed the flames of color at sunrise and sunset. And he created every living thing. He created the cardinal and the blue jay, the hippopotamus, the rabbit, the horse, the cow, the whale, the shrimp, the ant, the dinosaur, the list goes on and on. God reveals himself to us at the outset as a God who is infinitely and magnificently creative. The Bible tells us that he showcases his glory in the heavens and the earth. And then we come to scripture and God reveals himself to us in the form of stories and songs and poetry and narrative history. God is not a God of grays, uniformity, mundane mediocrity, and boredom. God is a God of blazing fire, majestic mountains, endless galaxies, bursting colors, and infinite variety. 
Now, the Hebrew word for create is bara in Genesis 1.1. Everything, it, every time it's used in the Old Testament, there is, it's God is the subject. There's something wholly unique about God's creative work and energy. He spoke and it came to be. There was no discrepancy like there is with us of something imagined and something put in place. For God, he imagined it, he spoke it, and it came to be. And there is great beauty in this creation. We've already talked about some of the beauty of sunsets and oceans and trees and stars, but notice what our passage says in chapter 2, verse 9. It says, and out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. You know that God could have just made ugly food, ugly trees, but he didn't. It was good for our nourishment, but it was also pleasant to the sight. Why? Well, because the creation reflects the creator. And God is absolute beauty. And so he creates things that are beautiful. God also cultivates his creation. The creation account does not show God creating and then removing himself from the equation or a creation that just stays the same. No, we see care and cultivation. There's development. Look at chapter 2, verse 7 through 9, and, and notice, notice the verbs. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Verse 8, and the Lord God planted a garden in the east. Verse 9, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight. So from the dust that he created, he, he forms like a potter with his clay, man. He, he plants a garden and then like a gardener, he cultivates it and, and makes trees spring up and mature. God cultivates and he upholds his creation. In Colossians chapter 1, we read that in Jesus, all things were created and all things hold together. God continues to ensure that the laws of science remain. His creation is upheld by his sovereign hand. Genesis tells us that the entire creative world was not a product of chance or happenstance. It was intentionally designed by God. So the question comes, well, why did God do this? Well, he didn't do it out of any lack like we do. He didn't create it so that someone would be impressed by his creation. God didn't need that. He was perfectly satisfied in the Trinitarian relationship that he had, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. No, God created out of an overflow of who he is, utterly magnificent and benevolent. Creation is an overflow of God's generosity to us. He creates a world of beauty and wonder to be enjoyed. What's your view of God this morning? Is he a God that you find boring? 
Well, hopefully, you see, far from being boring, God is magnificent. We are called to wonder at this creative God. Point number two, a creative people. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, it says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So this creative God creates a creative people. He decides to create something that had unique image-bearing capacity. Man and woman are formed and put into the garden and they're tasked to work and keep, to multiply and subdue, to image God by cultivating and imagining and creating. Because God creates beauty, we too should create beauty. Because God cultivates and keeps his creation, we too should cultivate and keep. Because God is wonderfully imaginative, we too should have, as Francis Schaeffer says, imaginations that fly beyond the stars because we seek to reflect who God is. Because God is creative, we too should be about the work of creating. Not to be the same as God, but to reflect God. Because we are made in his image. Now, I am speaking of creative endeavors in a very broad sense. Creativity is first and foremost a way we do something, not just what we do. God does not limit the way that we image him to the painters and musicians. We all are called to image God in his creativity. A tradesman fixing broken homes, pipes, or wires. A mother or father bringing creative solutions to the chaos of their home. An accountant organizing numbers on a budget sheet. A consultant helping solve the problems and complexities of a business. A gardener planting and cultivating. Are creating and subduing and keeping and cultivating just as a photographer capturing the smile of a baby or a musician crafting a song or a composer writing a symphony, a painter painting a painting. We all are called to participate in what God has called us to do. Think about it this way. The highest calling that we have in life is to honor God and worship him, right? We're created to honor our maker. And the best way that we can do that is in the way that God intended. A tree glorifies God, how? By being a tree. That's how it glorifies God. I do not glorify God by trying to be a tree. No, I'm not a tree. God has created me man. And part of that responsibility is to do what he calls me to do, which is to reflect him, 
to bring beauty and goodness and order to the world, and we're to be about that work. Now, I've had many conversations, partners, in getting ready for this sermon. One of them is a man named Harold Best. He's a, he used to be the dean of the Conservatory of Music at Wheaton College. He says this, each gives fully, the one God out of endless bounty and the other out of responding stewardship. That's what we're called to do. We're called to steward. And this stewardship takes work. Look back at our passage, chapter 2, verse 10. It says, A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and it became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pashan. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and Ankh stone are there. Now, have you ever wondered why that's in Genesis? Like, there are a lot of things that could be in Genesis that maybe we would like to be in Genesis that aren't. So why, why this? Why here? Well, there's an artist, Christian artist, named Makoto Fujimura. And he made the observation about this passage that all the substances described here, the gold, the bedellium, the unks, are hidden. It's only by exploration that they will be discovered. These are precious stones and metals that require digging, unearthing in order to, to find them. There's more than meets the eye when it comes to God's creation, and, and that's the way he intended it, that we are to uncover beauty in the world. There's an author named Andy Crouch, and he says this, Speaking of this passage, God has located the garden in a place where the natural explorations of its human cultivators will bring them into contact with substances that will invite the creation of beauty. We can assume that it was Adam and Eve's descendants that unearthed these precious metals and stones. In fact, gold and onk stone are actually used in the creation of the tabernacle. We've not reached the end of creativity. God actually calls each one of us to continue to unearth, to continue to mine, to continue to study and act. And all of these things, hopefully you see at some level that God has called you to reflect him in his creativity. All these things are designed and intended for us to worship our creator, our God. We make and create because we worship. What God calls us to do is meant to be done faithfully and excellently so as to communicate something of the greatness of our maker. At their best, our creations of our hands and our minds are to be offered in worship to God, to point others to his glory. As the moon reflects the light of the sun, so we are to be reflectors of, of God, who is far surpassing in excellence. But we have a problem. Sin entered the world. This is our third point, creativity distorted. You know the story of Genesis. 
And the tragedy of the garden was that Adam and Eve were not content to live in God's goodness. And their disobedience wreaks havoc in our lives today. Satan comes and twists what God has said and made. In chapter 3, verse 6, we read this. So when the woman, tempted by the serpent, saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Notice what happens here. The woman still sees the tree as God intended it, good for food, a delight to the eyes. That's exactly what God said. But now there's something else. Satan twisted how gifts from God are to be used. Andy Crouch again says, it is not enough for the world to be beautiful and good. We want it to be self-sufficient. And we want to be self-sufficient within it. Eve believed the lie that she could become like God and that what God said was good was not good enough. She doubted his, his character and thus became the beginning of distortion of both creation and creativity. I want to mention three ways that sin distorts creativity. The first is sin makes our creative abilities about our identity and our glory. If you know Genesis, you know in chapter 11, we come to the Tower of Babel, where mankind realizes that they can create. They can create bricks. And so they come together and they say this, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. Creation for their glory. And that's what sin does to our creativity. We no longer create for God's glory. We find in our creativity our source of identity. It becomes a place where we seek out significance and worth. How often do you live and die by the successes or failures of your creative endeavors, of the work that you do? How often do you sneakily become a glory thief? I can relate to that. When I'm here on this stage singing, there's a part of me that wants to glorify God and honor him with the gifts that he's given me. But there's also a desire for worship of me. I have to fight against a desire to walk off this platform and want people not to say, God is so good, but wow, you're good. Wow, your voice is amazing. Wow, you play the guitar really well. Sin's distortion. Second, sin makes creativity and beauty a thing to be worshipped. We get deceived into thinking that the power lies in the thing itself. The music, the painting, the act, the business deal, the experience, the order, 
We're tempted to believe that art exists for art's sake, and so we pursue the thing itself as if it can hold the weight of our expectation. We make the means the end, and we begin to ascribe worth and ultimately worship to things that were never meant to be worshiped, nature, food, movies, sex. And that's not just people who don't know Jesus. Church history is littered with an over-reliance on relics and icons as the thing that gives us the experience. It is our goal. It is the end. Have you ever found yourself focused more on wanting an experience or hoping that there's a certain preacher or hoping that there's a certain worship leader or hoping that it sets a certain environment rather than desiring to know God, to see God, to see all of those things as a means so that you can worship God? That's sin's distortion. And finally, sin turns us from creativity to passivity and from discernment to foolishness. And I think this is a unique danger in our day and age. We are too content to passively consume rather than actively engage. And we must recognize the corresponding drift into a lack of discernment. A couple years ago, a friend of mine, Tony Ranke, wrote a book called Competing Spectacles. And he argues that, that we live in a day and age of spectacle. And the currency is our attention. That's what everybody wants, our attention. And in order for us, in order for them to get our attention, there's a race towards the more extreme, superficial, and irreverent because that's the only way to get through. The result of this is a world of excess. Netflix, anyone? Streaming music? At any point, we can gorge ourselves literally to death with whatever creative endeavor that happens to capture our attention. And we're susceptible to passively consume with an eye towards entertainment rather than a careful cultivation and appreciation for beauty as God defines it. Create, creative arts are powerful devices. Everyone knows this. And we've got to be careful because that passivity can then lead to foolishness. Not all that the world says is beautiful is beautiful. Not all that we create is good. God defines create, creative beauty and him alone, and his definition is wholeness, goodness, and truth. But left to ourselves, we can easily be led astray into thinking, this is beautiful, when God says, this is ugly. Pornography. Glorification of violence. 
celebration of chaos and sin. We must be careful that we avoid the temptation of excess and entertainment and passivity because that actually can lead to faulty thinking, foolishness, where you and I say something as beautiful and worthy of our attention when it is actually the very thing that Christ died for. Our incessant desire for stimulation and images can lead to impoverished minds that have been so stuffed with artificial candy we have difficulty even articulating and pursuing that which is wholesome and real. The day and age we live in shouts at us, more, more, faster, more extreme. When God's call oftentimes to us is slow down, linger, savor, be discerning. Sin has distorted what is good and right in our lives, the good creation and creativity that God has made. And make no mistake, sin cannot create a rival good. It only ever can distort what God has created as good. So don't believe the lie that there exists out there something outside of God that might be good. No, God is good. He is the source of all good. So where do we go from here? Our last point is creativity renewed. Creativity renewed. Thankfully, our creative God and the creativity of God is deeper and more wonderful than anything we could have imagined. One can grow hopeless when you see the distortion that sin has caused in this world. But it's in that moment where God reminds us that he has not forgotten his creation. In, Je in the book of John, the apostle tells us, in verse two, he, the word, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything that was ma made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The creator stepped foot into the dust of the earth and he came in order to save it in order to redeem it, to remake it. In the book of Revelation, God thunders back at us with a confidence-building words, Behold, I am making all things new. The world, in all of its decay, there's hope.
There's hope because God is with us. And as men and women made in God's image, though our creative imaging has been distorted, it has not been irredeemably broken. Jesus has done a resurrecting, redeeming work in our lives that while fully realized in heaven one day is still very real and present. Hear these words from 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so God offers hope to all of us who have believed the lies and distortions of sin. And he calls us to believe in him, to be freed from the shackles of self-sufficiency and false gods, and to learn how to worship him in the way that he has intended. Now, there's a wide range of people here. Some of us are believers in Jesus who maybe you, you have been convicted this morning of how you have believed the distortions that sin has wrought. Well, Jesus invites you to come like we did this morning in singing and confess. Confess how you have used creations for your own glory. Confess how you have made creations your God. Confess how you have been passive instead of active. And God's promise is he forgives you. He invites you to get up and to begin again. And if you're here and, and maybe, maybe a friend brought you, maybe you've dabbled in Christianity but don't really understand it, here's what God offers. What you, the best of what you see in the world, the things that you long after, the very things that get you to wake up and get out of bed, the hope that those things offer are not what you need. In fact, it's not even what you desire. We read from the confessions. God has designed us, he's hardwired us to be satisfied and to yearn for God alone because he invites us to bypass the false gods that we create and he invites us into relationship with the creator of those things. The God who does not just create beauty, but is beauty. God invites you into relationship with him. And your role, your job is to respond by confessing and believing. As we close, I just want to give us two encouragements. So we've talked about a creative God, the maker of all things good. We've talked about a creative people, how we're called to image him. We've talked about 
creativity being distorted by sin. And we talked about the hope of creativity being renewed by Jesus. So where, where does that leave us? Two encouragements. The first is cultivate appreciation for good art and beauty. Cultivate it. Here's why. You and I live in a world of disenchantment. Charles Taylor coined that phrase in a secular age, disenchantment. We're tempted to believe that everything resides in the temporal, the right now, and value is based upon utility. It's use for me. Hopefully you've seen at least glimpse this morning that God has created a world of beauty in part to remind us that he is transcendent and glorious, mysterious and magnificent. And, and one of the ways that we fight against that disenchantment that we all experience in some way is to learn how to appreciate and appropriately wonder in good beauty and art. I think Christians, especially Christians who grow up in kind of more reformed settings, can downplay the opportunity to see God's glory in aesthetic beauty and excellence. God invites us into a discerning but also expectant experience with beauty and art. Why? So that we can deepen our appreciation and worship of the God who created these things. Art is never, should never be in the church art for art's sake. But as Christians who rightly understand the place of creativity and art and beauty, we should be able to observe a painting, listen to a song, see order in the world, create beauty, and it moves us to worship the God who created all of these things. We should be learn to do that work and to do it well and to do it with discernment because not all art and beauty is good art and beauty. And we serve a God who is beautiful. And so as his followers, I think there is some responsibility where we cultivate a better understanding of what God has created and why it is beautiful. And so it's not enough for me to just attend a concert and to bask and wonder in the level of excellence. Me as a Christian should worship God in seeing the excellence and the wonder of it because it's a faint reflection of the brilliant imagination and beauty and goodness of the God that I serve, the God who I know. And so let's cultivate an appreciation for these things. We have a group called Covenant Arts in Christ's Covenant. You hear a little bit more about it next week, but the group is designed to be a place where hopefully we cultivate, we learn to grow in our appreciation 
and exercise of, of creative endeavors in the church. And so we hold different events and opportunities both to learn and be encouraged, but then also to, to showcase and be encouraged by other people's art. So if, if that interests you, I would love to talk to you about it and how you can, how you can get involved. So cultivate appreciation for good art and beauty. And second, cultivate creating and reflecting. Hopefully, the fires of your imagination have been stirred a little bit. We serve a God who is wonderfully, wildly creative and, and glorious, and we're called to reflect him. And so, create. Create beauty in your world. Create order in your world. Create goodness in the world. It doesn't matter if you ever paint a painting or write a song or not. God hasn't called you as he has made you. Very binary in your thinking. Very unimaginative. He's called you to be about this good work. And you may need other people to encourage you in how to do that. But God has called us to do it. Now, why do we not do this? Well, that's another message because there's a lot of ways and reasons. But let me just list two, hopefully, to help us. And this comes from someone who has intimately struggled with all of these. First, I think we hesitate to create because we compare ourselves to others. We base whether it's good or whether it's worth anything in comparison to other people. And in a world of social media, there's always someone better than you. And so we sit down and we don't bother. I don't think that's what God has called us to. Harold Best, who I referenced earlier, has this wonderful idea and principle of excellence. He says, excellence is more about a process than a destination. He defines it as getting better than you were yesterday. All of us can do that. What's the next step to take where you are faithfully seeking to steward your gifts for God's glory? Not in comparison to other people, but because God has called you to it. He's asked you to do it. Second reason we don't create, I don't create, is because we tend to find in our creation our worth and value. And it can't hold that weight. If you and I are just in what we do every day, we wake up to another day where we have to prove ourselves. But in Jesus, we recognize that Jesus has secured forever our identity and our value. All that we have and all that we are is found now in Jesus and his righteousness and his love for us. There's a singer-songwriter named Andrew Peterson, and I just want to leave us with with this, it's just a wonderful summation of this. He says, I'm no longer surprised by my capacity for self-doubt. 
But I've learned that the only way to victory is to lose myself, to surrender to sacredness, which is safer than insecurity. I have to accept the fact that I'm beloved by God. That's it. Compared to that, the songs don't matter so much. A realization which has the surprising consequence of making them easier to write. Friends, let's be about the work of creating so that we can reflect our maker. Because all of these things are means so that we can worship God. God is better, bigger, more magnificent than anything else in this world. So let's worship him and let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you and we confess our need of you. We confess that in the gifts that you've given, we often use them in ways that distort the goodness. And so God, we also hope in the fact that in Jesus, we can learn and we can grow in how to honor you and worship you with the gifts that you've given us. And so Lord, help us. In Jesus' name.